Hey everyone. Um, long overdue Blue Jay beat here. Uh, this is Matt Dean from White and Blue Review. And that's Johnny Atawa from, I guess I shouldn't say that. Some people are going to be watching the video. Some people are going to be listening to iTunes. So I should be specific. Whatever platform you're using, I'm Matt Dean I'm with Johnny Atawa from the Omaha World Herald. Um, and we're recording a long overdue podcast, uh, just kind of detailing all the things that have happened in the real world, Creighton's world, how they've clashed. Um, and yeah, we'll see if we can entertain and inform along the way. Uh, what's that? It has been a while. I miss you in person, even though we've still communicated off, uh, in, a, in our various, uh, you know, quarantine situations. It's, it's weird that we go from seeing one another every day, basically at practice or games. And we're kind of communicating. I mean, we keep each other entertained and practice can be kind of monotonous at times. We're waiting for them to get done, do some interviews, games after games. So we kind of got like, it was like four separation. Yeah. It hurts my heart. It does. I think I actually, I think I like even texted you. I just like I just miss you. <laughs> I didn't know how to convey anything else. I was like, I just want to be. Uh, I just want to spend some time with Johnny Otawa. Right, right. So that's what we'll do on this podcast. So hopefully it'll be somewhat entertaining. Because sometimes when we get going, uh, we veer off into some weird, <laughs> weird subplots and uh, trajectories. There's no doubt. Know. That's why I actually wrote down an agenda this time. So hopefully, hopefully, we can finally stay on course. But yeah. we'll see. Um, obviously there's been a lot going on in, in, uh, the sports side of things with, uh, just trying to figure out, you know, how everything gets moving, uh, in a post COVID-19 world, I guess I shouldn't say post because it's still out there happening. So I guess in a, in a world where they, there's more understanding about how to exist within it, you know what I mean? So, you know, it's kind of interesting the way everything has a ripple effect. You know what I mean? Like you wouldn't think uh, a college soccer program is dictated by a college football program or um, how pro sports affect college sports, but it does all seem to be, and if people didn't realize it, they kind of know now how connected it all is in terms of what you can get accomplished. And, uh, you know, obviously I think within this state um, specifically, I think a lot of what, you know, our listeners are wondering what Creighton's going to do. Well, I think a lot of what everything happens in this in this uh, in this state is dictated by maybe Nebraska football because that's the biggest economic booster in terms of having fans and whatnot. And if Nebraska football doesn't isn't able to do things, maybe the rest of them aren't going to be able to either um, because you really can't make the argument that if Nebraska football can't um, take place, then nothing else really can. Well, I mean, uh, in the sense though that some of the smaller events, you know, like Union Omaha, the new pro soccer teams looking at mm -hmm. starting up in July. And um, I bet I, it's going to be high school sports. I don't know if they're going to be fans, but they're going to be high school sports, I would think. Right. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I guess maybe I should have jumped the gun there. If they're not going to be in school, maybe it becomes hard to argue that they should be playing. But then again, there, you know, there's Legion baseball this summer, that kind of thing. So I think from a large scale, uh, just sort of like a macro looking at it, Sure, Nebraska football is going to set a lot of the parameters or at least perception of like what's feasible and what isn't. But there's a lot of smaller entities that need revenue or need to kind of get back to normal. 
And uh, so I like, I don't know. I don't think Creighton's going to be, while they'll be monitoring Nebraska, I don't know if it's necessarily going to, if what happens at Nebraska is going to be applicable to Creighton, just because it's different, man. It's like a small, it's so much, such a smaller campus. And, and uh, it seems like a little bit more nimble with having a smaller athletic department, smaller budget. Um, There are negatives to that too, but I don't know. I don't know how it's going to play out, but I, you know, I like, some people ask me um, if I was surprised that Creighton wasn't going to return or bring its athletes back on back on campus. Um, that what was it? June one was that the first date? Yep. That that voluntary workouts were allowed, and I was like, no, I'm not surprised. Like, well, one, right. they don't have football, so there's kind of like this urgency or pressure to bring athletes or football players back on campus to get ready for next season, make sure everybody's in shape. Um, but so that's one. But two, I mean, they. I, I'm just I, I'm not surprised to see Creighton Biggie schools uh, approach it a little bit differently than some of its Power Five peers. Yeah. Um, so, so it seems like I was, gonna, I was just going to say last thought was like it it does seem like they're pushing for or or like a July date might be a possibility to when you'll yeah. see athletes back on campus, but um, nothing's confirmed at this point. So we'll see how it plays out. I guess my my question to that point would be maybe not even maybe not just Nebraska football but Nebraska athletics in general because they have a women's soccer program they have obviously volleyball is a money maker for them uh, I think uh, Chris Hetty did Chris Hetty did a report that showed that Nebraska volleyball is a uh, um, you know a revenue generator it doesn't cost money to it's not in the black if you know what I mean um, I guess uh, if those sports don't you know, if those sports specifically don't go as go on as planned, does that then affect soccer and volleyball for Creighton? Mm. I think it would. Well, yeah, but they'd be happening at the same time, right? Like, right. Yeah. Um, it seems like there's going to be have there's going to have to be some sort of national declaration to. Or maybe it's conference by conference in terms of like shutting the sport down. Yeah, like that's kind of how it happened the first time, right? Do you think it would be the similar again? Yeah, yeah. That, I guess that's what it'd have to be. So um, now, while you might hear maybe some certain schools are pushing for a conference to make a decision, like if you're in Nebraska and you see that Nebraska sports aren't happening for whatever reason, and Creighton's like, "Look, Big East, we gotta stop," as well. Maybe its voice will be heard, but. It does seem like it's going to be like a conference by conference thing, and I don't, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but that's. It seems like that's the way they're approaching it right now in terms of the restarts and putting. The, I mean, the Big East just formed a task force um, with with a lot of different uh, experts from the medical side, coaches, athletic directors, event planners, and they kind of pick different people from across the footprint of the Big East, and so it seems like they're kind of task with figuring out for themselves and, and hopefully their plan aligns with the big 10 and the ACC and the SEC. Um, yeah. Cause that was the first, that was the first, the first backlash from it originally was that it wasn't all coordinated. You know, the NCAA said this, each individual conferences kind of were left in to make their own decisions. And that was kind of what led to them being made separately. But this time around, you would think there would be more coordination from, say, if the NCAA says no go, everybody is a no go. It's not, maybe it isn't left up to 
the individual conferences to make their own assessments this time. You know what I mean? I feel like that was a big. Is that going to happen? It might not, but that was a big problem the first time, wasn't it? Yeah, I know, but I don't think I don't think the lesson's been learned, or they found a remedy for it. Like, uh, because I mean, the NCAA can say we're not going to host our championships, but I, I don't know, maybe. I guess the NCAA did sort of like shut down sports in terms it, it had to, the conference couldn't bring players back on campus. So the NCAA said it was okay. So maybe that means that there is a, a route for the opposite to happen to where games are going on. The NCAA says we got to stop. Uh, yeah. But to me, I don't know if we're going to see that or not, which yeah, it adds to the confusion, but you know, the other counterpoint to that is that it allows leagues the flexibility to kind of figure out their own, uh, what works for them. And it's a little bit different with the Big East and Big Ten because leagues like span across 10 states. But if you if if there's a league that's kind of maybe more regionally, uh, like the South is different than the West Coast. And so maybe, you know, having some blanket ruling doesn't necessarily make sense for the Sun Belt versus the Big West. And that maybe that's a good thing. Um, but from a communication standpoint, <laughs> we saw what happened, like you were talking about with the conference tournaments and basketball in March, how it could be not so good. <laughs> like, right. uh, I, I mean, Belle Ackerman was flat out, she flat out said, we didn't know what the other leagues were doing. And they're in a board meeting like two hours before Creighton and St. John's are tipping. And all of a sudden they're like getting word that these leagues are conference or these conferences are canceling, canceling their tournaments. And they're like, what? Well, I think the one maybe misstep that led to that situation where we were sitting in an arena that was playing basketball and the rest of the world was just like, really, they're playing basketball? Um, was that they were coordinating with the city uh, in terms of what decisions to make. And, and in retrospect, I think that was probably not a great idea because the city's decisions – and handling that have not been great. So <laughs> maybe, maybe they, were, they were dealing with the wrong entity in terms of how to proceed with the best decision forward. So that's just, mm-hmm. that's just, that's just my opinion on it. Um, honestly, I'm amazed you, you and I got out of there without having any symptoms. So maybe we're the carriers of the, of the uh, vaccine and we just don't know it, but um, yeah, that was, I was curious to get tested. I don't want to, I don't want to go through it, but there was a pain-free test or a comfort, um, a comfortable is comfortable. Right yeah. word. I don't know. They jam a swab up your nasal passage. Have you seen passage. that, thing, that by the way? Like, it's like yeah. it does not. It does not look comfortable at all. Like, yeah, I, was, I didn't realize that there's a, a way to go that deep <laughs> um, down the nose. So, right. No, thank you. No. No, you're right though about New York City. What a weird experience that was. I that was. Um, I was really cautious because I knew just being around people, the chances were higher of yep. getting the disease. But I, I did ride the subway uh, reluctantly, but um, I don't know. It was subway or cab. I didn't know what the best route was there. But I, I definitely – my hotel was about 10 blocks from, the, uh, from Madison Square Garden, and I didn't leave that route. So I walked down 34th Street. Uh, for about 10 blocks to the garden and that was it so if, if I needed to eat it had to be a restaurant along 34th street or else I wasn't eating so uh, <laughs> I 
I I ran through a whole. I have had one of these little guys of hand sanitizer. Um, I ran through the whole thing of that. My hands, my hands were just like. Um, I mean, there, it felt like there was no skin left after the end of that trip. <laughs> I was hand sanitizing so much. I brought Lysol wipes in uh, Ziploc baggies. So That's that what I, I Lysol yeah. wipe a whole bunch of stuff. Um, Lysol wipe my hotel room whenever I came back. Lysol wipe my phone and the computer a ton. Um, yeah, it was uh, such a different and weird trip. And, and even to think about how um, – it didn't, I mean, the city didn't seem to be any different than any other trip for me, except saw a few more masks. And yes, uh, when we were on the arena, that was, that was different too. But you're kind of looking at me like you thought it was way different. Oh, I thought it was incredibly different. The city was, How so? it just seemed less populated. It seemed like there wasn't, you know, walking around and traffic didn't seem as busy as it normally is to me. I noticed that. The minute I got there, I noticed that right away that that people were, um, I don't know if they were just necessarily more more deliberate with what they had to do. Like, I'm not gonna waste time here, or here, or there. I'm just gonna go and get what I need to get done and then get back in. Um, the differences <laughs> I noticed with that were a lot more sirens, I'm guessing from ambulances, and then um, far less people walking around the streets. I don't think I've had. I can't remember a time where I've been walking around New York City where it's been that easy to get around without having to wait at crosswalks for with big groups of people. Like that was not a situation at all for me. Like to me, it looked mm-hmm. like it looked like the city was kind of already in quarantine. And honestly, when I got there, I turned on the the local news in my hotel room, and and the mayor was already kind of making cancellations of these types of activities and whatnot. So I think that was already kind of in motion when we when we got to New York City. Um, because I definitely noticed that people were taking it more seriously, even though it didn't necessarily, from an outbreak standpoint, that kind of all turned into a giant mess when, when we left, almost right away, it seemed like. But when I got there, I noticed, I, it seemed like it was far less populated to me. So I, I, I honestly did not get that sense. Really? And, I mean, it could have been that I was walking, I mean, the path that I was walking to the arena, back and forth from my arena hotel, I mean, it's a pretty popular spot we're talking about like uh the empire state building that's about right where i was to the arena um you know like i think uh i'm trying to remember i don't think i don't think macy's that big macy's mall it's in that area but it's not right on that path that i took but um it's a lot of hot spots so perhaps i um, was just around some of the tourists uh, and not the, the regular New York City people who are like, okay, we're going to stay home. Yeah. Um, let me see. Yeah, I don't know how to transition this back, but <laughs> that situation was crazy. Moving forward, uh, our fall sports, <laughs> our, our fall sports, uh, the, the Big East obviously announced that there's a different fall sports situation going on with their league schedule. And we were on the conference call with uh, Kirsten Bernthal Booth, head coach of Creighton Volleyball, talking about what that means for them and, and what the NCAA has communicated with them, maybe behind the scenes in terms of what their schedule will look like with regards to um, getting all the games that they've already put on the schedule and already agreed to in. And it sounds like, at least for now, 
they're going to go ahead as planned with uh, with what they've already agreed to with other non-conference opponents and whatnot and tournaments and things like that. Um, they haven't released it, and I don't think that's going to happen for a while, at least until they know what kind of protocols will be in place in terms of fan attendance and testing and whatnot. And I think that's probably, you know, in terms of for us, for just on this podcast, like a question we can probably answer later on uh, with, you know, when we know when we know what kind of testing protocols are in place, when we know what kind of tracing is going to be done, when we know what kind of protocols are in place for what happens when someone tests positive, because, you know, all the teams – all the football programs that have already come back, especially in the South uh, that have started doing mandatory or voluntary workouts and, and whatnot, have already had players testing positives and isolating them and, and everything like that. So as soon as we know more about what that situation is like, we'll be able to speak more intelligently on what the, what that looks like for Creighton when they start to get back into the gym uh, with basketball, when they get on the field for soccer and, and volleyball and whatnot. So maybe a, a, a topic for another podcast, but in terms of right now, uh, they are breaking off into two divisions, um, and yeah, they are going to be unbalanced because uh, UConn is going to be officially a member. I think July first. Okay. Yep, yep. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the, it's the East and Midwest division. Uh, the East will be Connecticut, Providence, Seton Hall, St. John's, Villanova, Georgetown. Uh, the Midwest will be Creighton, Marquette, Butler, Xavier, DePaul. Um, and what that means for, and I think it, it affects men's soccer, women's soccer, field hockey, which we don't cover, uh, and volleyball. So what that means for men's and women's soccer is everybody's playing a double round robin, um, which means the East Division is playing 10 matches in the league and the Midwest is playing eight. Uh, for volleyball, it means the East Division is playing 20 league matches and the Midwest is playing 16. So I guess the first question maybe on soccer um, with two less, with two fewer league matches, um, and Georgetown not being on that side because uh, they're a powerhouse in both men's and women's soccer. Um, what it, what what are some of the things that come to your mind in terms of maybe just from Creighton's perspective of what that means with pros and cons in in uh, taking into account uh, in terms of what their schedule looks like, both when you when you pile on a non-con and the league slate, what that means in terms of building a good enough resume for maybe an NCAA tournament or whatnot. You know, I haven't talked to Coach Torres, um, yeah, but I, I know he, he schedules really aggressively anyway. And so, um, you know, this is, I guess they're still kind of in the building mode and, Last year was about setting the culture and trying to get players and, you know, obviously get to a place where they're back in the NCAA tournament every year. But, like, I, I, I feel like they're going to be okay. I mean, you, you're going to miss Georgetown and Providence and St. John's, like, having those RPI boosters on your schedule. Um, but I guess if I guess it puts a lot more if, – if, if, indeed, there is an NCAA tournament, I guess we're going to have to add those qualifiers whenever we speak. But um, – operating on the assumption that they are playing for a postseason berth. I mean, I guess it does put a lot of pressure on them in the non-con. Like, they got to be ready to go pick up some quality wins there because the the opportunities will be a little bit fewer. Um, and on the women's side, well, I don't know. They just haven't fared well in the Big E in general. So, um, I feel like they're trying to build some confidence and that winning mentality. So, maybe, maybe this helps them. Uh, 
to you know you don't have to face Georgetown. That's always all to ask, yeah. even though they perform. They they perform pretty well against Georgetown in the past, right. but um, I don't know. I I think in my mind, I'm not sure if I sense that this is going to be drastic. Mean something drastically different for either program, but I am curious. What do you think? Well, I think for, for, for men's soccer, I think it definitely hurts because it seems like the best teams are definitely on the east side of the Big East now. So, so Georgetown, and, 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 Providence, UConn, UConn, St. John's. Like St. Those John's. four? Yeah. Those four are the uh, – I mean, if you're ranking – if you split the Big East in half, like those four add Butler – Mm-hmm. It's the top half of the league. Uh, yeah, and then you know Xavier's a team that's been tough too. Like, but yeah. other than that, you know Marquette and DePaul are usually always if they if they're in contention, they're usually fighting for the last spot. Um, so I think you know because they haven't made the NCAA tournament the last couple of years, I think the the it gets a little harder now because now they have to win matches that they maybe haven't done so well in non-conference play against some of those bigger power schools they've been scheduling at the North Carolinas and Wake Forest and whatnot, uh, Stanford's. Like they had to knock yeah, off yeah. those teams instead of just playing well against them and trying to get better for league play. Because the, de- the league slate is definitely softer now for Creighton. And in, in terms of building an RPI and building an NCAA tournament resume, it's, that's, that now becomes more challenging. Um, yeah, it's like they, they have games at Wake or at North Carolina or – at Stanford and you're like, you go into it thinking, Oh, this is win-win. Even right. If we don't win, it's an RPI booster. Now it's kind of like, no, there's a lot on the line that I get those wins. Yes. Otherwise they'll be climbing uphill uh, in conference. And it's going to be hard to do that without a lot of um, resume opportunities. Yeah. But for women's soccer, you made a good point because they're not really at that stage of their, they're not really at that stage as a program. They're still trying to, you know, break that, break through that barrier of qualifying for the Big East tournament. So with a softer league slate on their side, because they aren't facing Georgetown, uh, you know, Marquette's been traditionally Marquette is good, but the last few years they haven't been, but they have a new uh, regime now, new coaching staff and everything like that. Um, Actually uh, one of their, one of Creighton's former goalkeepers is on that staff now, which is interesting, Aaron Scott. Uh, but, you know, Butler's been pretty good. Xavier had a really good year last year. DePaul has been good. So it's not – I think their division now is is tougher than on the men's side. Um, so they still have a tough road to qual- – maybe even arguably tougher if you're thinking about how they break it down in, in terms of who qualifies for the Big East tournament. It's just about number of spots in your own division – and then it adds into the spots that qualified before. The road actually arguably got harder to qualify it for it than it has been before um, when you're dealing with six versus, what, maybe three or two this time. Um, yeah, I guess that's a yeah, question. So, Are they going to – is the tournament for soccer, It's if it's a 16, 16 tournament, would it be three from each division based on winning percentage, or would they just do – the whole conference has the best winning percentage in conference. That probably wouldn't – the second option probably doesn't seem very fair. Right, exactly. So, yeah, that's, again, something maybe we have to see what their plan for that is before we speak intelligently on it. But the road to just stay above water in in, in their own division looks like it's going to be harder than ever before on the women's side than it is on the men's side. The problem with 
what's going to happen on the men's side is they might not have enough uh, fish to feed on in the first place to, you know, not all, not only qualifying for the Big East tournament might not be a problem, but building enough of a resume to be in the at-large conversation might be now. Um, so it's two different challenges, I think, for both programs. But I think there are some cons involved to the split here into divisions that um, – that provide that, that throw in more uncontrollables to the situation that Creighton might necessarily have to deal with. Um, and that's just on the soccer side. On the volleyball side, the first thing that popped into my mind was Creighton and Marquette are going to play four times. That's that's awesome. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I think you know St. John's is going to be really good this year on the volleyball side of things. I you know in in theory because they bring a lot back from a team that made a late run and qualified for the tournament. Um, I think the thing to consider is St. John's wasn't a tournament team before they made that run. So what are we talking about with them bringing everybody back? What does that exactly mean? Um, but just looking at it, Creighton, <laughs> from a Creighton standpoint, it knocks a lot of RPI killers off their schedule. You know what I mean? So that was the first thing that came to my mind was they're adding Marquette two more times guaranteed. Uh, and, you know, Xavier has been a team that's been able to, when they've got a talented squad, they've been pretty tough. They've made the Big East tournament title game, I think, once. Uh, I think maybe 2017 against Creighton they made it. Um, uh, DePaul hasn't been good. Butler hasn't been good lately, but they've been good before. Uh, but just having the two best programs in the in the in the conference on one each in the same division, it's kind of like the Ohio State Michigan deal for football really i mean they are the two perennial powers they're arguably top 10 top 15 programs at this point considering their body of work over the last uh you know four or five years and that to me that to me is so much of a pro that i don't even know if there's a con in for creighton in terms of what it looks like for them from a volleyball standpoint what about you other than the logistics having to play a team twice in one weekend, which I feel like hurts the better team. Maybe I'm wrong on that. Maybe Coach Booth has a better – I'm curious what you think. But, like, it feels like it's hard – even though you are the better team and say they're going to play Xavier Butler, to have to play them back-to-back nights, like, that seems – it seems more difficult to do that um, mm-hmm. than to go and play two different teams. But aside from that, no. Like, right. Marquette, Marquette and Creighton playing four times. That's, yeah. I'm, I'm curious, man. I'm, so I know that the regional scheduling and the divisions they were put in place because programs need to save money uh, on travel costs. They want to limit the potential risk of exposure to the coronavirus. Um, it's all because of the pandemic. That's what's led them to this decision. But I wonder if there's an element of this that can be used going forward. I don't know if you necessarily need divisions, but I don't think regional scheduling is that bad of an idea for a league like the Big East, which is so spread out. And um, you have sort of a cluster of teams on the East Coast that are all really close together. Um, And, I mean, I know there's, there's definitely a competitive balance question, but I'm thinking about the promotion of the league, especially in volleyball. I want Creighton and Marquette playing all the time if I'm a Big East uh administrator you know like i want i want as many matches against with those two featuring the the, because it doesn't hurt either one um to play one another and 
it's a good showcase of the best of East volleyball. Um, so I think this is, I think this is great. And it's going to be fun to see a Friday night match uh, of Creighton and Marquette match going against each other. And then they turn around and do the same thing on Saturday. Yeah. It's basically uh, <laughs> potential to have like 10. Uh, it's like a best of, I don't know. What is that? A best of, it's a best of, like you could you could basically play ten sets in such a short amount of time. Like yeah. the uh, X's and O's factor and and competition factor, like that's going to be fascinating. I just think from the other thing is, I think from a margin of error standpoint, it's got to be somewhat of a stress relief because you know before with that Creighton and Marquette series, with the what they do, the, what they what they've historically done to the rest of the league these last few years, those two matches have been amplified to a degree. I can't even, I don't even know the number I'd say. Um, and usually the, the team that gets the one uh, has a pretty big leg up because at worst they're looking at basically a tie for first usually if they drop the second one. Um, but, you know, with four just, matches. Oh, you're saying they have a leg up just in terms of like the pressure isn't yeah. as strong is that what you're saying right. yeah like the like, you know if, 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 if you lose if you lose like if Creighton loses the Marquette or vice versa that doesn't necessarily knock one of the two out of the outright title picture because there's still three more matches head to head you know what I mean so yeah and I and the other, the other part of it is like how do you determine the conference champion like if you have divisions and two of them don't play each other you really don't crown a conference champ until that conference tournament, really. You know what I mean? So with, with that alone, it just makes the race more interesting because once you mix everybody up together in that tournament, that's really when the conference title is decided. Before that, you're just determining divisions, really. So it's going to be, from that standpoint, I guess there's just less, mar- there's just less margin for error in terms of, yeah, we can't lose here. Um, and I know Creighton's kind of been in a position for, for volleyball in the last few years to say the point where the conference title kind of took care of itself because they were trying not to lose more than they were trying to win, honestly. Like, because a loss to what they were facing most nights in the Big East was more of a more of a killer to their hosting chances than it was to their conference title picture. So it, there was a bigger picture in mind when they went into all those matches anyway, it wasn't just related to the conference title. I think that's, you've seen, we've seen that kind of play out for them, um, you know, the last few years because they haven't really, as much as the conference title has been something they take pride in, it, it hasn't been one of their bigger goals the last few years because they've wanted to host, they want to get to the places the program haven't gotten to yet after getting that taste of it um, in 2016. So uh, just from that standpoint alone, I just think there's there's less pressure on the program to be as perfect as they were before um, with this new slate, I think. And I, I, honestly, just, again, knocking off a Providence and a Georgetown and a, a Seton Hall and, and now a UConn, who isn't much better in that regard, off their schedule with regards to the, the pressure it takes to um, – it's a lose-lose situation almost because you have to win – and if you do lose, then you basically killed your chances of hosting. Um, from that standpoint, it's it's good for Creighton. Creighton's handled those teams pretty well, right? I mean, the only team that Villanova's got them, 
Georgetown, they, won five, they went five. With, they went five with Georgetown before. Yeah, um, I think two years ago, Providence. They didn't play very well either. Match I think last year. Like there's, there have been some like where you see Creighton doesn't have their A game and it's looked it's it's shown kind of. So mm-hmm. having those matches where they don't have to, you know, where they don't where they're not facing um, a plus two hundred opponent, it's shown in their in their quality of play, I guess. Um, and you're right to the point of Seton Hall has beaten them. Um, I think a couple times before. So yeah, it's knocking those two off the schedule. As much as losing a, you know, a top, top 60 ish RPI team opponent in St. John's and Villanova, I think there's more benefits to not playing those sub 200 teams in UConn, Providence and Georgetown and Seton Hall. So there's just far more to lose on the other side of the division than there is to gain. So I think the way it shakes out is, uh, is nothing but a plus for, for Creighton. The other thing I thought was interesting was because of the because of the quadruple round robin, is that a phrase? Um, 20 matches on the east side, 16 on the midwest side. What immediately popped into my head was another a weekend has opened up to play, uh, you know, more tough non-con opponents. But that doesn't necessarily work logistically because we don't know what the schedules, the conference schedules look like for the rest of the uh, leagues across the country. So um, when we did that conference call with uh, Coach Booth, I had to pump the brakes on that one because I didn't consider that before. So I guess what does that look like to you then? Because if Creighton doesn't, if Creighton is able to fill, you know, whatever those four openings are that the, that the other side of the division doesn't have, um, they essentially turn into bye weeks, right? So how does that work? Does the East have to play – a conference match or a conference weekend right off the bat to get kind of a head start. I mean, because they can't really, I don't know if, you know, they can't just sit out for two weeks while, while the rest of the conference finishes their slate up before the conference tournament starts. Right. Like that doesn't make any sense. Does it? I think it's old. Isn't it the similar dilemma that Creighton baseball runs into because uh, with, with, well, what it used to now there's eight. They, but, they, but the way that, yeah, the way the big East does in baseball, they fill it with a non-conference weekend. Yeah. So, yeah. But it's hard to find that opponent because, you know, if you're talking about having a bye week in April or early May, um, I guess that one year Creighton's bye week came at the end of the season. It was like the last weekend of the season they got Cal to come in. But it's, you, you just have to scour conference schedules across the country and hope that somebody else has a buy and they're willing to come or you can go there. Mm-hmm. And that'd be the same thing that Creighton Volleyball would run into. is like, okay, we don't play on October 14th. Um, is there anybody in the Big Ten that's not playing? Is there anybody in the Missouri Valley, the Big 12, that's not playing? And are they also willing to, to play? I, there's definitely no guarantees there, so I can understand why um, – they maybe would be a little bit reluctant to schedule that. But once the schedules come out, maybe you'll see – like, I'm kind of with you. I, I, it's an opportunity to go out and play, and, and maybe you don't want to take a break. Um, but did you ask – did you ask Coach Booth about the uh, – um, where the finals week falls in, in, in the volleyball schedule? Was that your question? Yeah, That's something along those lines. Yeah, like where, how that, or it wasn't necessarily where it was how it affected. It it seems like most teams, or sorry, most schools are going to end their um, their fall semester before Thanksgiving. So that would put, I mean, at Creighton, I think their finals week is like Thursday wrapped around to a Tuesday. 
mm-hmm. if I remember correctly, like the 19th through the 24th yeah. of November. And um, what, you know, normally volleyball is not even in action at that point, right? Or maybe that that's when the uh, that's when is or the yeah, that's, when the conference tournament, that's when the conference tournaments for soccer and volleyball are usually kicking off or at least coming into final form. Well, so I, meant, I meant when, when finals week occurs, volleyball is not – I mean, we're talking about maybe eight teams that are affected versus right. the whole country normally. Yeah. Um, so how does that impact it? Because in basketball, you, you'll see teams take the whole week off and maybe play on a Friday or Saturday. Creighton, the last few years, has played a Friday or Saturday game at the end of finals week, but they don't schedule games during the middle of finals week. And if the schedule were to hold the way that Creighton has it set up, I think reportedly this, this is a men's basketball piece of the discussion, but like Creighton's set to host Arizona State on the 21st, uh, and then Creighton's going to play in that tournament, the Bahamas tournament, the 25th, 26th, 27th, like that's literally in the middle of finals week. How do you manage that? Can they take, can they take finals early? Can they take it later? Like, I don't know how you go about that. I think every sport's going to have that question because the traditional calendar is off. And so moving games around, changing the schedule up, like that might be necessary. Maybe the conference tournament for volleyball gets pushed back a few days and it's, it's played on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday or something. I don't know again, how that would work with the with the NCAA tournament and where it falls to. It seems like the schedule might need to be tweaked based on where finals week is because, you like, obviously you don't want to load up the players with too much at the mm. end of the semester. And then from a conference tournament standpoint, the other part of it is, I guess, does it make sense now for, the, for volleyball to expand their tournament to six because – you know, you just take three from each division now and go from there because they've been wanting to. That's something they've wanted to do. They don't like. I don't think they've liked four, but I don't think they've necessarily been fans of scrapping it either. Despite my pleas, um, but do you think now it makes sense for the for at least at least for the way it's setting up this year that the conference tournament moves to six teams and like you said, uh, takes place over a three day period? You know what I mean? Yeah, I think that that works. And what about baseball too? Like baseball, yeah. expand that tournament. That now seems like the good time to do that as well. So what does baseball expand? <laughs> so you, you, who are you kicking out right now? There's two teams that don't make it, basically. Hold up. Is yeah. That, well, could you just go to eight? Time. Could you just? Could everybody be in the tournament? Oh, so just everybody's in. Yeah. Is that? I don't know. Okay. Just do like uh, what two buys. Yeah. Or, just start, or just started at eight and let everybody. Or play just started at eight. I don't know. Go one versus eight and whatnot. Yeah. 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 It's a tough a question team. because you don't necessarily want to open it up to everybody, and and you want your best team to represent you in the tournament. But in the case like last year, where your best team was Creighton, it was getting in regardless. Maybe some chaos in the tournament wouldn't be a bad thing mm-hmm. um, for baseball. But I, yeah, six at least. For sure. Yeah, six at least. I agree. Um, uh, transitioning to basketball, Creighton did get a commit uh, for their 2021 class, their first one. Uh, Ryan Nemhard from uh, – he's from Canada. He plays in Florida, so it's like, you know, he's from all over the place. But, um, yeah, he's out from that Mount Verde Academy, that, that powerhouse program uh, down in Florida. 
uh, I guess what were your impressions? Honestly, I, I wasn't, <laughs> and I, I don't feel bad about this after talking to him, but he wasn't on my radar in terms of a guy to watch out, watch for. Uh, and just from talking to him, you know, it's funny because you mentioned he's like, I don't even think Creighton actually officially offered me a scholarship. I think they just said <laughs> they had me on a virtual meeting. They said they wanted me, um, and I wanted to be there, so I committed. I was like, okay. It felt like that was kind of fast. Yeah. He said they didn't actually make contact with him the first time until after quarantine started, which when you try to, like, when you – some of the recruiting – some of the recruits we followed with when they get offered – when they visit and when they make a decision and all the lists trimming down stuff like this was extremely unconventional because there was no, he's not on Twitter. There was no cutting of a list. There was no uh, big time. Like there wasn't a lot of attention around it other than he's a really good prospect and a lot of high major programs have uh, been in on him. But yeah, Creighton got in late. Apparently they made a big impression. Um, didn't actually, from his perspective, didn't actually offer him a scholarship. They just kind of, <laughs> made it known that he was uh, someone they wanted and he he loved what they had to offer. So that was how it, how it happened. But just from yeah. your from your well, I guess from from your perspective, that whole thing, the way it came down and then what type of what type of player that it looks like they're getting in well, well, I was just thinking about you. And that timeline probably doesn't work for most guys, but no. with Ryan and his family, I mean his brother played at Florida. I mean, their basketball family it just seemed like kind of the sense I got was that they knew exactly what they were looking for in terms of where Ryan was going to fit. Um, offense, culture, coaches, teammates, like they knew what they wanted and they kind of just like stumbled into like a gold mine in a way. And they're like, oh, this Creighton, this fits exactly every, checks off every, every box on the list. Um, so for Creighton, from Creighton standpoint, it worked out really well. And obviously they did a good job of, of making their pitch and getting him on board. Um, but yeah, like I think one of the things I think his dad mentioned this to me is like they knew like, Creighton's going after a lead guard this class, right? It's kind of like um, you see this. I feel like you hear this dialogue in football a lot. Um, you the quarterback uh, in in a class like you don't want to you don't want to be the second quarterback in Ohio state's recruiting class or Florida state's recruiting class or whatever. Like, so it's kind of a race to see who's going to commit first in a way, because if Creighton's going to offer five point guards and they're all committable offers, which I don't know if they are or not, but like they, we know that they sent out offers to different players and they had guys on their list. And if you're a guy like Ryan Emhart, you're like, I think this is fit, so I'm going to commit right now and not drag it out, like you said, trimming down the list and taking visits all over the place. It's like, uh, I know what I want, and this fits it, so I'm going to go. Um, there was that game that gets played in recruiting a lot too, which you know is kind of tricky from a, a prospect standpoint. To You don't want to rush to make a decision, but you also know that if you take too much time, that spot may not be there because mm -hmm. um, there's other players that are recruiting. So. Um, I thought that that was notable too, is that they felt like, um, I think initially maybe someone had quoted Brian saying, this was like a couple months ago that he was going to try to take multiple visits and right. see campuses. And then, you know, as he learned more about Creighton and, and kind of fell in love with the school and the program, he was like, I don't, I don't need to do that. And maybe there was some urgency to say like, look at all, there are recruiting other players too. I want to beat them to the punch. 
and get in because I know this is where I want to be. So I thought that whole process was kind of fascinating to hear from their perspective of like maybe why it happened a little bit faster than you would maybe traditionally think it might. Um, and I think also quarantine helped because they, what else are you going to do? You just sit around thinking about what, <laughs> what this college versus the other college, this pitch versus the other pitch. He said, he, was just play, he said he was just playing a video game, and he was just like, you know what? I just, I just want to play Creighton. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's like so. <laughs> you're alone with your thoughts if you're not yep. playing basketball. These guys, they, uh, yeah, they're playing video games, playing basketball, and then it's, 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 uh, it's, it's in, in a normal world, he would have been playing AAU ball. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had a, a, a trip with Team Canada, the U17s. Um, for a tournament, like uh, his, he would have been, his focus would have been shifted a little bit, I think. And now it's like, what else are you going to think about? Think about <laughs> where you might be going to school. Right. So, um, I guess from Creighton's perspective too, like when you look at the schools that offered, um, and then he, he went to, he, he obviously made a visit to Stanford. Like when you think about, when you try to figure out, like you said, what Creighton has to offer versus the rest they do kind of stand out a little bit in terms of, you know, style of play to some degree and also what, a, you know, an elite point guard, uh, how it just like how you're able to, to improve your, I don't know if it's necessarily professional stock. It is to a degree, but it's also just, you know, how, 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 how you're able to flourish within that system as a point guard with skills like that. When you look at Maurice Watson, when you look at Marcus Zagorowski, um, the guys that have really been, you know, all American caliber players at that position at Creighton, it does kind of, a, uh, you know, make it a place that is able to attract a guy of um, Nemart's, uh, you know, not only is like, not only his skill set, but what he's done on the international stage, um, what he's done at a high level at the high school level, uh, you know, a guy like that you know, Creighton is attractive to a player like that, especially when you look at the body of work that they've done recently with some more high-level point guards, one being an out-of-high school recruit in Zagorowski, the other being a transfer from a lower major school um, in Watson. Yeah, and even Davion Mintz, like I know he kind of played two-guard and point guard during his time at Creighton, but he transferred to Kentucky to play point. So um, you could use that if you want um, as, as evidence to – you know, the, the benefits of playing point guard in the system, being a lead guard in the system. And I think it's going to fit Ryan's game really well. Like he looks like he's sees the floor. Um, definitely wants to create for one, for his teammates. He's got a little flash and flair to him. I, I think he, uh, you know, he's slender, but he doesn't play when I watch these highlight clips and it's just highlights, you know, how much can you gain from it, but it doesn't seem like he's getting pushed around. And I look at the, what is six foot 160 165 and you're like man that's that's small but he doesn't play like that no. um he looks strong i think, I think they have a, a strength and conditioning program at mount bird so like he's yeah he's got he's a little bit advanced for a high school player in terms of his strength and conditioning already you can tell just by looking at him and so yeah i'm I, uh, I i think i mean he he uh he talked about just the he talked a lot when I, I talked to him about kind of like the ball screen aspect of of what Creighton runs and um, how he feel like he feels like that 
piece of it um, really works well with his, like he seems like he makes really good decisions in traffic. So you imagine like him going downhill on a ball screen and then kind of getting into the teeth of the defense and making some uh, decisions, throwing up some floaters. Um, so yeah, like I, I'm, I'm really intrigued to see what happens. And obviously there's no guarantees because Sharif Mitchell's still in the program and mm-hmm. he's going to be getting better. And, and uh, Rati and Dronikashvili could play point, right? Like he's played some point in his international basketball career. Um, he's six, five, so he could easily slide to the two as well, but like they've got some depth there now um, mm. going forward post Marcus Zagorowski. Um, and so, and I like all three of those guys, uh, like as, as sort of orchestrators of offense and being able to create for one for yeah. other teammates. Yeah, because Roddy, like you said, Andre, I, I don't even want to try to say his name without looking at it first, but Roddy with, like, being able to slide over Sharif, uh, you know, Sharif and uh, Ryan being different types of players with Sharif being uh, more of a defensive specialist at the stage of his career and Ryan being more of a guy who can, you know, make plays for others and, and, and be a guy who runs the offense pretty well. Um, the other thing, though, about Ryan's game, he is kind of pesky defensively, man. He that's what I've, that's what I've and yeah. Get up and check guys. So, like, that's a piece of the game you don't really get. Is, like, it's hard to see that in highlights. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, Montverde's games are going to be you – know, presumably we'll see a few of those on TV. Usually <laughs> the program's so high profile that, um, you know, yeah, hopefully we can see him play. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, – uh, I think he said he, he thinks uh, – playing soccer help with the defensive side of it because mm. he said he played defense at, at, at in, in soccer when I don't know how long he played but I think till eighth grade he said that, he said that helped I think he played till eighth grade that's what yeah. he said or so if anybody's grade, listening if anybody's listening grade. out there play soccer because you'll be a better basketball defender apparently. play multiple sports multiple sports right <laughs> right unlock the muscles um I think from what that means for the rest of the 21 2021 class though is that you know, especially when you look at the roster matrix, uh, you posted that on, um, I don't know if you wrote about it, but you posted it on Twitter. I saw it. Uh, so check that out if you haven't seen it. We'll chip chart. Yeah. We'll link to all this stuff in the, in the, in the, in the write-up of the podcast. But um, yeah, if you haven't seen that yet, check it out. Cause John's got a pretty detailed breakdown with bright colors and everything like that. Um, I stole that <laughs> template from somebody. I don't know who, but. Um, well, it was good. So, it's around it's around the college basketball world, so I felt like I could. I didn't see you give credit to anybody, so I didn't think it was stolen. But <laughs> that's why I didn't, because I've seen it a few times. But yeah, it speaks to your integrity that you admitted that just now. Uh, <laughs> I guess I didn't admit <laughs> it when I shared it. Uh, but the rest of the twenty twenty one class, like ideally, with Sharif in the fold, Roddy in the fold, and Ryan in the fold, like that's it's probably they're probably not looking for another point guard in twenty twenty one. So it's basically slashers and shooters, um, maybe more of the latter, considering what they're losing with uh, likely Zagorowski not being there and uh, Mitch Ballard graduating. Um, and Denzel Mahoney, if he returns, uh, also leaving too. So um, what do you see as the major priorities, both in terms of style, of skill, and uh, players that fit that mold? Well, I mean, I look at some of the guys that they've kind of been recruiting for a while. Hunter Salas, local talent, obviously. 
More, uh, then he's more of a slasher than a shooter, right? Yeah. Well, he's working on that shot. I don't know. I think he's got both of that those pieces to him. Um, and he's he's eleventh ranked player in the country according to rivals, so he can do it all, I guess. (laughs) Um, Tucker DeVries, he's a shooter, right? Like, um, arguably the best in the class, maybe. And uh, they've been recruiting him for a while. Mason Miller. I'm not sure I know Mason Miller's game very very well, but uh, Mike Miller's son, so I just assume he shoots really, really well. Yeah, pedigree. And, uh, pedigree was a just shooter. Yeah. Tamar Bates, mm-hmm. a Kansas product who is now at IMG or is going to be at IMG this next year. Um, I think he's probably got some slasher shooter combination in his game too. So, to me, those were the guys. I mean – Everything it it always shifts, and when you're recruiting, you uh, you obviously like Creighton. Creighton has more targets than that, obviously. But like those are the names that stood out to me a few months ago, and still do. And so, yeah. what are they looking for? I mean, I think they're just looking for somebody. They're looking for obviously somebody who can shoot, and uh, and just be a playmaker, like kind of what they're wings have been known for over the past three four years mm-hmm. that have been featured in this offense as and when you look at the uh scoring leaders in the big east usually you see a Creighton wing there and so i think that's what they're looking for and so, so who's your who of that of those four you just listed who's your who's your top priority if you think if you think what like if you think Creighton's offense and what it's going to need likely with what it's losing after next season, how do you, how do you rank those in terms of how they should, how Creighton should prioritize them? Do you fall in love with the, mm-hmm. with the, uh, you know, recruiting hype that Salas has been getting, or even though you feel like he's probably, you know, looking for the right out of state offer and all the rumblings have been that he's looking to go out of state or, you know, you put all your eggs in that basket, or does a Tucker DeVries, who's arguably the best shooter in the class, who wants to be at Creighton as soon as they're, you know, it's his dream school, arguably, so you prioritize him more. Like, how, 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 where do, what do you, in your mind, what should Creighton do? Right, and that's the question. It's like, or do you, do you have to shift the focus away from all of those four and go elsewhere? Um, like, they obviously have more offers out than just those four. Mm-hmm. To, I mean, I don't know. To me, I always think you go local first and then you spread out. Um, but obviously, going into a battle with the Blue Bloods uh, in college basketball is tough from yeah. a recruiting standpoint. It doesn't yield a high percentage success, right? Yeah. yeah, and it hasn't. No, okay. not not in the past five years, even though Creighton's obviously upped its recruiting profile and its, its, its status as a program. It's not Duke. It's not Kansas. Um, and it's not North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've learned that, um, and we've seen it play out. I mean, I, I feel like they put a lot of work in, into that that kid from Kansas, Tamar Bates. Um, yeah. And and he and like Salas have been the guys they've probably recruited the longest out of that. He's been on campus a couple of times, and he, I mean, technically he is local, right? Like they had. Um, I feel like they identified him pretty early. Like they were one of the first schools in on him. Did you feel like the IMG move uh, knocked them down? 
in terms of their probability that they have with the, in terms of their chances? Um, maybe a little bit just because it will increase his exposure, and then all of a sudden you're going to go up against – but he already has some big-time offers. I think Kansas already offered him. Right. So he's about as – I mean, but but again, you, he the more the more teams that kind of – it's just – I mean, the more options you have, obviously – uh, the harder it may be, be it may it, it is for a school like Creighton to stand out because everything all of a sudden then what Creighton's selling is hey we've got this this and this. and another school's like well you know we've got A and B that Creighton has but our our C is something that Creighton doesn't have and maybe that fits what he what he wants um, so but I, I I look at those two as 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 guys it, it's hard to know it's hard to predict what's going to happen with Tucker DeVries man like his dad's a coach at Drake. And obviously he could play in so many different places. He's good enough to play at a high major program, but it's hard to pass up opportunity to play for your dad. So it is know. for sure. I think, I think uh, he, I think he should be a priority for Creighton just because of his skills. Um, and when you have a guy that that can do what he can do, honestly, like when you watch him, I just, I see so much of, and this is tough to say it out loud because like what Doug accomplished in college is, is seriously, it's unprecedented. Like nobody can, you can't just expect guys to come in and, and, and do what he was able to do. Like being an all American three times, a national player of the year as a senior, um, 3000 point score, all that kind of stuff. Uh, like he was special um, and he worked at it to get better. But like when you look at Tucker now and you try to compare him to, to where Doug was at the same stage of his career. Um, then you factor in like the, the work ethic and he's a coach's kid. And um, the fact that Creighton has kind of like been rumored to be his dream school, like only adds to the, you know, the ease of which that recruitment could go if Creighton decides to um, say, yeah, you're, you, you know, we think highly of you enough to play at this level and, I just feel like he's going to be everything, not everything, but I think he's going to be in terms of skills and what he brings to the locker room and what he'll bring to the the practice floor and his work ethic and everything like that. I don't know how you turn away a guy like that, even, you know, even if you want to see him prove at that level first and maybe say, you know, play for your dad and all that kind of thing and, and do it at the D1 level first. Uh, you know, I don't know if, if, if he can – I mean, if he can play – like, there's guys who – if you know, anything you're concerned about in terms of maybe athleticism or size, I mean, I think he's got the size. I think it's all about whether, you know, from a defensive standpoint, you think he can hold his own at the Big East level. And I don't know if that's necessarily – I wouldn't be terribly turned off by that because I think you can – I think Creighton has shown that they can get by not only with scheme, but they can – they've been able to improve guys in that regard. You know, Mitch Ballack is a guy who's gotten a lot better defensively just in terms of his, you know, his footwork and his, you know, his speed on that end. And Marcus Zagorowski was a guy, uh, you know, I mean, I remember watching so many drills where he couldn't even chop his feet properly without tripping over himself. And now, um, you know, he worked at it. He put in the hours um, and he's a lot better on that side of the floor than he was when he first got to Creighton. So. Dude, Tyshawn. Yeah, yeah, same deal. Right. I don't think defense was written in the like recruiting reports. No, I don't think they even 
it wasn't even a thing. It's like, well, he's a really good shooter, and playmaker, offense, like their, their potential to play point guard. There was nothing about defense, right? <laughs> so, so I don't know if you're like, yeah, I don't know if he's I mean, a that's, part of that's crazy. I don't know if it's as big of a turnoff as it is. Like, so yeah, if you're thinking, if you're thinking, what is what are his weaknesses at the Big East level? I don't know if they're enough to say he can't he can't be a major contributor at that in that conference. You know what I mean? I yeah. think, I think I mean, he's such a good is, shooter. Like it's, it's going to override anything else. Right. Right. At least. The, the tough part is, is, you know, Creighton's not going to comment or talk, we talk about openly what it's recruiting board looks like. So it's very possible that all these guys, um, if they said yes today, Creighton be like, let's do it. Right. Um, I kind of feel like that's the case. I don't know. Again, <laughs> is I, that, I, but, so in in that regard, is is Nemhard's commitment an important first one? Getting I think point, so. Getting, getting you can say, hey, yeah, yeah. yeah, I think so. Hey, this is the guy who's going to be setting you up, man. He's going to be putting the ball in position for you to just uh, go to work and and get buckets. I don't know. It seems like Creighton has. Let's see, they have two open scholarships for next year, at least probably three. Is that right? Um. So they could take a couple of these wings. And they probably, I mean, from a roster composition standpoint, maybe they benefit from from doing that. The other thing you'd have to factor in too, if, if you're, and, and Greg McDermott said this on a Zoom call with us a few months ago, is like that they they prefer, or their preference at this point is still to develop freshmen. And so that they're, they're if they can, if they can take freshmen, they're going to do that first before they go to the transfer market. But you do wonder um, with the pending legislation that's likely to happen where first-time transfers are going to be automatically eligible, how that – maybe it doesn't have an effect on the 2021 class, but um, how it reshapes your approach as a coach, knowing that there's, if, you, if you have a need, um, you can get a player right away. Or you may, might be able to just get a really dynamite, awesome – talented player um, who you slot ahead of one of your developing freshmen or sophomores. Um, again, that's not the way that Creighton's approached it in the past, but um, after seeing how this, uh, this one-time transfer rule plays out in next spring, assuming that's, it goes into place next spring, I wonder if that'll change it. But yeah, that probably won't have an impact on 2021 though. Sure. Um, something that might have an impact on 2020, however, uh, Denzel Mahoney and Damian Jefferson are still, um, at this point, mulling over their options in terms of, uh, whether to, uh, go pro or return to Creighton. Um, and for, you know, I think the situation is different for both of those guys. I think there's different things they're looking at, but, uh, I guess the likelihood that, you know, to introduce this topic is likelihood that both return, one returns, neither return in your mind. Hmm. I think they're both coming back. I don't know. To <laughs> school or to Creighton? They're both coming back. To, I'd be surprised if they're not coming back to Creighton. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. That's just my sense of it. So, but so here, uh, just, just for people who don't know, I guess like the new updated uh, deadlines, the NCAA, after, you know, the NBA announced their plans and put their 
um, their new dates of importance in place. Um, the NCAA announced that the withdrawal deadline for those early entry um, candidates are uh, ten days after the NBA draft combine or August third, whichever one of those dates comes first. That's the probably going to be August third. Yeah, I would think so. It, it, for the reports are suggesting that there's not going to be workouts. There's not going to be um, really any contact from NBA teams or front office personnel and prospective draft players before August third. Like they're not going to do the combine that early. They're not even starting the season yet, restarting the season, and the draft's not till October. So it really does seem like, um, I mean, the date was probably put in place to just say like, hey, that's, yeah, it's, this, this is about the last, the longest you can go before classes begin. Yeah. And they didn't want to uh, have maybe a, a player having one foot out the door or kind of like be on the fence once classes begin, which I can understand that. I think that's fair. Or if a player is trying to leave, have like at least allow for what, maybe what is it, a couple weeks at the most for uh, schools to um, get a replacement player in and, and get them registered for classes and whatnot. So, um yeah, I think, you know, I would put – I would definitely be surprised if Damian Jefferson does not return to Creighton. Uh, but Denzel, I could see him coming up with maybe a few reasons why it doesn't fit. Um, not necessarily because he can't produce at that – you know, in that level, but I think last year was – a pretty tough year for him in terms of what he had to sacrifice, not only with his skill set, but he, you know, he had to play. And now you could argue, and I, I probably would argue with myself that Creighton doesn't really have uh, out of position necessarily because they put five guards on the floor a lot of times anyway. Um, even Christian Bishop has more guard skills than he does big man skills. So like, uh, you know, Denzel playing the four or the small ball five isn't necessarily mean he's not getting to do things that guards get to do. But I think, you know, in terms of handling the ball a little bit and, uh, you know, things like that, he wasn't. Well, I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't navigating around ball screens. He was set. Right. right, right. So that's, yeah, that, all that sort of thing maybe would lend itself towards the argument that, um, that he didn't, he didn't play the role. He maybe was told he would play when he got here. And that was just out of necessity with what the team needed. Um, and that's a part of it. Like, that's a part of it that doesn't get factored into these guys' decisions when people try to say, why would you leave or go pro or do this or do that versus not come back with, you know, the potential of what this team could do. And a lot of it has to do with just, you know, where they fit and everything. Like, there's going to be a battle for playing time. Um, you know, with Antoine Jones in the mix now, like, that you know, if you come back for your senior year and you and you say, you know, I'm good enough to play over these guys and whatnot, and I'll be able to showcase myself. Because Denzel's a guy who came to Creighton with the idea that Creighton would be able to um, develop his game and showcase him at, at a high level to the point where he would be um, an NBA caliber talent by the end of it. That was his; those were his stated goals coming in, and that's the reason he chose to come to Creighton. So. Um, I could see in his mind where that where where those priorities don't necessarily align with um, what his senior season might look like 
at CU. And that's why I could see – I don't know if I necessarily see him transferring somewhere and sitting out, but I could see him, you know, trying to take the hard road to the NBA, you know, whether it comes through the G League or whatnot like that. I could see that. Hmm. You know, I, you know. No, I can see. <laughs> look, I I can see anything happening, and I I would never, like, I'm of the mind that if, obviously, if I were advising Denzel or Damien or even Tyshawn a few months ago, like I'd give them sort of my perspective on it, but also, it's not my decision to make, and the only person's, it's Denzel's decision. It's Damien's decision. It's Tyshawn. And they know how they feel in their heart and what they want to accomplish. And, um, and so uh, we'll let them make that, we'll make that decision and just sort of react to it when, when it's done. But I do see, I guess I say that because I'm like, well, I think the best path to reaching his goal from where I sit is to come back to school. Mm-hmm. He, um, one of the best players in the Big East and play more of the perimeter oriented position that he's that he wants to play because he will. I mean, Craig actually has fives next year, like that. Right. Um, There's actually a big man on the roster. Yeah, right. Um, so, in my mind, that, that that's the best path, but I can also understand kind of what you said, what you laid out, um, sacrifices that were made last year of, of you know, feeling that accomplish what I've needed to and and I'm ready to go take the next step and explore the next chapter um but yeah man it's to me it just seems too tough to pass up to to rejoin a team um that is going to be I mean it's one or two in the big east going into the season a top 10 top 15 team um you get your degree at the end of it like that's, I, you're going to get incredible exposure more so that, that you would trying to fight your way through the G league. I think. Um, yeah. Um, I, I, that's why I'd be surprised if, if, if Damian or Denzel were to leave, but again, like it's their decision. And if they feel that they're not, they don't want to come back to college and go to class and do, and like basically do half and half basketball and class. Like I get that. Um, because yeah, like I, I remember when I was in school, man, like I was doing just enough to get by class wise. So I could focus the rest of my attention on my quote unquote budding career as a student journalist. Like I was working for the student newspaper and I was at, at the, um, uh, at the office every day. Uh, sometimes I'd skip class to go do like write about events or cover events or do interviews. Like class was obviously important to me but not as important as what I was doing on that end of it and if there was a way that I could have just focused solely on that and still got my degree I would have taken that in a heartbeat (laughs) um and in their mind they're like well if I can I for me I needed my degree to get the job that I have today they don't need their degree to play basketball professionally so if you tell if there's a way that you can play and focus solely on your basketball career and uh make sure that you're maximizing these, these prime development years. Um, and you feel like, Hey, I, I can do that better on the pro scene. Then more power to you. Go do it. Um, so I, I don't know. They, we'll see what they decide, but um, you know, I haven't, I haven't really talked to either about, 
how they're feeling or how they're do, dealing with this um, and where their minds are at. I was just kind of letting them make their decision. Uh, it can be a little bit, if you catch them in the middle of it, you know, like uh, while they're still kind of deliberating, going back and forth and you write a story, it can, it can sometimes be um, misrepresentative of how they actually feel. Like if you catch somebody in the middle of the process, um, you know, they haven't worked it all out. So that's why, yeah, I, I totally agree. That's why I never liked the, um, I mean, just in regards to like the last two with Kyrie and Tyshawn, there was the preliminary, I'm throwing my name in like media scrum where we asked all these questions and whatnot. And then there's the decision where I'm all, I'm staying in like, okay, so what do those questions now become? Like it's, you're right because when you catch their mindset of what they're thinking when they declare when they declare they're thinking they're thinking nothing but NBA you know what I mean like that's the only thing that's the end goal to them like they're hoping everything that they hear leads to that otherwise they wouldn't declare in most cases like and then so after the fact it's like okay so we asked a bunch of irrelevant questions and wasted your time um, and put out stuff that people try to read too much into and, and make the decision for you at that point. So yeah, you're, I totally agree that um, when you do try to, when you try to try to get into their mind before their mind is made up, you just get, you get too much information and all, most of it is not, most of it's not on point. So yeah. Uh, but you do make, uh, I think you made a good, made good points about, you know, coming back versus going, um, and what and the benefits of each. So, um, like, like Denzel and Damian, man, they're going to thrive in this offense if they return. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, what's interesting about Denzel is I know that he, um, you know, he playing playing his position, his like sort of quote unquote natural position as the two or the three would that would help him on the pro scene certainly. But he was such a good mismatch five. Like, like, again, that's not something that he would do or teams would draft you or add you to a roster to do. But he was so good at it, man. Like, in the college game, I mean, he was a mismatch nightmare. And, I, again, I know next year he returns. Like, Creighton's actually going to have big men, and they're not going to go to that. Um, but he had the strength to muscle uh, – up against Tyreek Jones and Theo John, and then the quickness to give them hell on the other end. So, yeah. like, to me, I was like, come, I'd come back just to do that again. But, again, that's not on the – I mean, he made the guy who was voted defensive player of the year a non-factor because he couldn't be on the floor. Like, right. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, the last... and, and the other piece, too, again – I not to kind of belabor this point, but I just, I thought I'd, cause I was interacting with some, um, some Creighton fans a few weeks ago about what Creighton could be. Um, assuming that Denzel and Damian return, I was looking at, so if you look at the top scorers in the big East returners, mm-hmm. it's Marcus Zagorowski one, Charlie Moore, two, Colin Gillespie, three. This is based on last year's stats. Yep. So, um, three-point guards, obviously really good players. And then it's Paul Scruggs from Xavier, David Duke from Providence, and 
uh, Denzel Mahoney both averaged 12 a game. And then Rasheen Dunn, Mitch Ballack. So I've just named off eight players, and Creighton has three of the top eight in terms right. of returning scores. Yeah. Um, Villanova, ha- Villanova has one of those top eight in Colin Gillespie, but then it's going to have the next one, two, three, four, three of the next four. Justin Moore, Jermaine Samuels, Jeremiah Robinson Earl. So Villanova and Creighton are returning a lot. And, uh, I mean, to me, the chance to be a part of that is it'd be too, it'd be tough to pass up. Yeah, because you're gonna uh, come in. You're gonna come in as a league title contender. Like, yeah. I think all eyes will be on you. You know, like, yeah. But we'll see what they do. No, I agree. Um, one thing. The next thing we I wanted to tackle here, um, or that we we should, I think, is uh, you know, obviously with 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 the protests and everything that have gone on, um, that have highlighted again the situation in this country that continues to rear its ugly head with, in terms of, you know, injustice, not only with, in terms of how it exists systematically, but how it exists in terms of law enforcement and the way it, uh, you know, has led to untimely death. Um, that highlights everything. And I think, you know, it, it, it created something in this country for some reason, all of a sudden this time, it registered to a degree that it just couldn't be ignored anymore, which, you know, the thing that has always frustrated me is that it tends to go away and it's like, well, it doesn't stop existing. So why now was it, why now was it a situation where everybody felt compelled to say enough is enough? Like enough should have been enough a long time ago. Um, But it has, I think finally hit home. Um, and it created a situation where there are a lot of entities, both from a university standpoint, um, a professional league standpoint, uh, uh, a corporation standpoint, were finally speaking out on it. And in terms of how this relates to a Creighton topic, which is probably what, you know, some people are starting to roll their eyes right now, like, oh, guys, don't talk about this, you know, but it needs to be talked about. And in terms of how it relates to Creighton, obviously Creighton had not made any public statements. They had held some vigils. Um, they had certainly uh, made some statements. Father Hendricks had had uh, university president. Um, but the, the other pillars of the Creighton community, specifically um, athletic director Bruce Rasmussen and, and Greg McDermott, head coach of the Creighton men's basketball team, um, that are prominent members of the community, hadn't yet spoken out publicly. Um, that led to, you know, Denzel Mahoney's uh, reaching out and just saying, like, look, are we going to at least speak out on this? And, you know, I think he got some pushback because, um, you know, his, his, I think his original comments were in regards to the university. And technically, the university had done that, if you will. Now, the two arguments that I made in regards to everybody releasing statements was I don't want, I don't want to see a statement just for it to be a statement. You know what I mean? Just because you feel compelled to get your PR points in. I want it to be, it needs to be not what I want it to be. It needs to be heartfelt. It needs to have a purpose and it needs to be followed by action. 
And what I thought, and I'm curious to get your perspective on it, what I thought was it's better to listen and understand this situation um, from the perspective of the black community and from African-American athletes. Um, if you're going to speak out, you, I think you should understand the situation first. And, you know, that's why I wasn't necessarily wondering when Creighton was going to say something and specifically Mac and Rass. Um, but I was more, more wondering what they were going to say because I knew behind the scenes that they were doing some of those things in terms of reaching out to people and trying to understand the situation from that point of view better. Um, so I think, and that was my pushback with everybody trying to correct Denzel was, look, it's at the point now where maybe it's not about what Creighton did, you know, just in terms of the statement they made, but whether that message resonated enough with, with the people it's supposed to reach. And I wonder from your perspective, from your point of view, um, your takeaways from not only Denzel, you know, kind of crying out saying, Hey, you know, it's time, it's not time to shut up anymore. Um, and then what that in turn uh, created or prompted in terms of the response and the, and the messages and the statements that were released. Um, yeah. yeah. It, 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 man, I wish we had more time. I'm going to have to jump off this in about five minutes uh, to help my wife and my son here. But um, well, I think one thing that I think one thing that should be noted about Denzel's critique was that I mean, he screenshotted each university's official Twitter page and said, like, come on, Creighton step your game up basically. And I think that that it should be a lesson to a lot of um, college campuses, especially it's so hard to communicate with your students. Everyone's across the country, but like social media is the like, we're not doing like letters. No, you know, email. No, social media is how you reach this generation. And if yes. your social media game isn't at the same level as others, or um, if, if it looks like, you know, Father Henderson wrote, I thought, a really thoughtful um, letter addressing the topic, and I thought gave some really valuable perspective on it. On on, the, but it was, you know, it was retweeted by the official Twitter account. If if the official Twitter account would have pulled out a quote and you know made some sort of graphic with it and sent a link, you know. I don't know. I'm, I'm talking about social media sort of, I, I'm not an expert here. Right. Like, but it's like engagement. How do you, how do you um, reach out to your followers and, and interact with them? Um, I just think that it could, it, it, I think what Denzel was saying is that it could have been bolder with it and just a little bit more visible, like visible. And so that to me was a critique of like what Creighton was doing was in line with everybody. It just wasn't out there. And that's important because it shows the, um, it sets the example for everyone else um, on, on campus. And it, it, it's a message to, um, you know, the white students on campus, the peers that, uh, the people that Denzel, Damian Jefferson, black athletes, black students will be going to school with and sitting in classes with that like the university does, it, this matters to them. This, this, this issue is important and, um, 
it like on the agenda, the priority list when when administrators sit down to say, hey, what what issues, where can we be better? Like um, racial injustice and the way that it's seeped into our in society in so many ways, sometimes undetectably, like that's at the top of our list. And so, um, yeah, this whole these last couple of weeks, I think, have done that for a lot of people. And it's it's opened the eyes of 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 uh, of individuals. And I think we've all had to I mean, I would hope kind of approach the last couple of weeks with sort of a spirit of forgiveness and empathy and being like kind of opening our hearts up to changing ourselves and being better and finding ways to uh, uh, to ensure that the circumstances that led to George Floyd's passing, uh, his death, and what happened afterward, the reaction, the pain that you you felt, or the emotion from Black communities across the country, like everything that led to that, we can change that. And um, But we do have to do more, and we do have to be more aware, and we do have to, again, be more empathetic and be willing to listen more. Um, and it's got to be top of mind all the time. Yes. And so that, you know, these last few weeks have been important, but the next two years are going to be even more important. And uh, statements that were released and um, videos that were made, like meaningful, yes, important, yes, but now we got to follow up with action. Exactly. Like so that's, the, that's I, yeah. I'd love to dive into it more with you, but I got to, unfortunately, I got to run. No, it's all good. I think, you know, you, you nailed it because it's not about what you say when the hashtags are, you know, trending. It's, you know, will you practice what you've preached in that moment going forward when it's not, when the, when the head, when it's not making headlines, when it's not, um, you know, when the streets aren't filled with protesters, are you still going to both as a university and as leaders in the community? And I think that's what the messages that were sent by Greg McDermott and Bruce Rasmussen and Father Hedrickson and Creighton University the, those messages didn't just uh, didn't just react to the now. They they both they did multiple things. They looked inward and said, you know, clearly enough hasn't been done yet. Uh, there was also an openness to learn about these situations from the perspective of the people that are mostly affected by them. Um, and then what happens going forward, and is what do you do? to affect the change that you said needs to occur. And that's when, that's when, that's how you judge it basically. The message you sent is one thing. The actions you take in the aftermath of that message and the changes you instill in your programs in your university going forward are how that message is judged in hindsight. Because if you just said it and if they were just carefully crafted, you know, um, words to, look good in the public's eye that's one thing um but if you don't practice those those remedies and if you don't you know if you don't maintain your awareness of um the injustices that are happening around you when they're not always as visible um that's that's going to be the problem going forward and it's a, it'll be the reason that the situation you know occurs again and again um if we don't if we don't take it to heart and keep it there and always make it top of mind in terms of how we treat people um, and how, you know, as 
a community. Um, the laws are enforced. The, the people are treated like it's, it's just, it's a wide ranging thing, but it has to be practiced as much as it was preached in those moments in those, in those week, week and a half where, 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 the, where the hashtags were flying, the, the petitions were going around and everything was a trending topic. When that stuff dies down, what happens then is the, is how everything will be judged and how change we made. Um, so yeah, I didn't think we get, we didn't get to questions, unfortunately. Uh, maybe I'll just tackle those after you hop off here to go take care of that, uh, that family. You got the young one. You said he's getting bigger, right? Yeah, he's getting big. <laughs> yeah. I feel like we, we answered both of them. Yeah, we did. Um, we didn't talk yeah, we about do, the, yeah, we didn't we talk about the Oklahoma state NCAA decision, but we can do that another time. I'll just, uh, link to your, um, to your piece that you wrote on it. Cause I felt like you tackled the, all the topics and questions within that, in that piece. So, um, yeah, I, I guess the short answer would be my eyebrows are raised, but every case is different. For sure. For sure. Um, well, John, it was good talking to you, man. Um, like, I, like we said at the start, uh, miss being around you, but hopefully pretty soon we'll be, um, back in the mix and doing the back on the grind and doing what, what, uh, kept us going every day. So, um, all the best to you and your family. Uh, hope that little guy's enjoying the time with his parents that they have home right now. Um, we'll see you pretty soon, man. Sounds good. Uh, right back at you. Cool. Take care, buddy. Later.